Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. My Man Jeeves by P. G. Wodehouse. 4. Absent Treatment I want to tell you all about my dear old Bobby Cardew. It's a most interesting story. I can't put in any literary style and all that, but I don't have to, don't you know, because it goes on its moral lesson. If you're a man, you mustn't miss it, because it'll be a warning to you. And if you're a woman, you won't want to, because it's all about how a girl made a man feel pretty well fed up with things. If you're a recent acquaintance of Bobby's, you'll probably be surprised to hear that there was a time when he was more remarkable for the weakness of his memory than anything else. Dozens of fellows who have only met Bobby once since the change took place have been surprised when I told them that. Yes, it's true. Believe me. In the days when I first knew him, Bobby Cardew was about the most pronounced young rotter inside the four-mile radius. People have called me a silly ass, but I was never in the same class with Bobby. When it came to being a silly ass, he was a plus-four man, while my handicap was about six. Why, if I wanted him to dine with me, I used to post him a letter at the beginning of the week, and then the day before send him a telegram and a phone call on the day itself and, half an hour before the time we'd fixed, a messenger in a taxi, whose business it was to see that he got in and that the chauffeur had the address all correct. By doing this, I generally managed to get him, unless he had left town before my messenger arrived. The funny thing was that he wasn't altogether a fool in other ways. Deep down in him, there was a kind of stratum of sense. I had known him once or twice, show an almost human intelligence. But to reach that stratum, mind you, you needed dynamite. At least, that's what I thought. But there was another way which hadn't occurred to me. Marriage, I mean. Marriage, the dynamite of the soul. That was what hit Bobby. He married. Have you ever seen a bull pup chasing a bee? The pup sees the bee. It looks good to him but he still doesn't know what's at the end of it till he gets there. It was like that with Bobby. He fell in love, got married with a sort of whoop, as if it were the greatest fun in the world, and then began to find out things. She wasn't the sort of girl you would have expected Bobby to rave about, and yet, I don't know. What I mean is, she worked for her living, and to a fellow who has never done a hand's turn in his life, there's undoubtedly a sort of fascination a kind of romance about a girl who works for her living. Her name was Anthony. Mary Anthony. She was about five feet six. She had a ton and a half of red-gold hair, gray eyes, and one of those determined chins. 
She was a hospital nurse. When Bobby smashed himself up at Polo, she was told off by the authorities to smooth his brow and rally round with cooling unguents and all like that. And the old boy hadn't been up and about again for more than a week before they'd popped off to the Red Stars and fixed it up. Quite the romance. Bobby broke the news to me at the club one evening, and the next day he introduced me to her. I admired her. I've never worked myself. My name's Pepper, by the way. Almost forgot to mention it. Reggie Pepper. My uncle Edward was Pepper Wells and Company, the colliery people. He left me a sizable chunk of bullion. I say I've never worked myself, but I admire anyone who earns a living under difficulties, especially a girl. And this girl had a rather unusual time of it, being an orphan and all that, and having had to do everything off her own bat for years. Mary and I got along splendidly. We don't now, but we'll come to that later. I'm speaking of the past. She seemed to think Bobby the greatest thing on earth, judging by the way she looked at him when she thought I wasn't noticing, and Bobby seemed to think the same about her. So that I came to the conclusion that, if only dear old Bobby didn't forget to go to the wedding, they had a sporting chance of being quite happy. Well, let's brisk it up a bit here and jump a year. The story doesn't really start till then. They took a flat and settled down. I was in and out of the place quite a good deal. I kept my eyes open, and everything seemed to me to be running along as smoothly as you could want. If this was marriage, I thought, I couldn't see why fellows were so frightened of it. There were a lot worse things that could happen to a man. But we now come to the incident of the quiet dinner, and it's just here that love's young dream hits a snag, and things begin to occur. I happened to meet Bobby in Piccadilly, and he asked me to come back to dinner at the flat. And, like a fool, instead of bolting and putting myself under police protection, I went. When we got to the flat, there was Mrs. Bobby looking, well, I tell you, it staggered me. Her gold hair was all piled up in waves and crinkles and things, with a what-you-call-it of diamonds in it, and she was wearing the most perfectly ripping dress. I couldn't begin to describe it. I can only say it was the limit. It struck me that if this was how she was in the habit of looking every night when they were dining quietly at home together, it was no wonder that Bobby liked domesticity. "'Here's old Reggie, dear,' said Bobby. "'I brought him home to have a bit of dinner. I'll phone down to the kitchen and ask them to send it up now, what?' She stared at him as if she had never seen him before. Then she turned scarlet. Then she turned white as a sheet. Then she gave a little laugh. It was most interesting to watch. Made me wish I was up a tree about eight hundred miles away. Then she recovered herself. I'm so glad you were able to come, Mr. Pepper, she said, smiling at me. And after that she was all right. At least you would have said so. She talked a lot at dinner and chafed Bobby and played us ragtime on the piano afterwards, as if she hadn't a care in the world. Quite a jolly little party it was. Not. I'm no lynx-eyed sleuth, and all that sort of thing, but I had seen her face at the beginning, and I knew that she was working the whole time and working hard to keep herself in hand, 
and that she would have given that diamond what's-its-name in her hair and everything else she possessed to have one good scream, just one. I've sat through some pretty thick evenings in my time, but that one had the rest beaten in a canter. At the very earliest moment I grabbed my hat and got away. Having seen what I did, I wasn't particularly surprised to meet Bobby at the club next day, looking about as merry and bright as a lonely gumdrop at an Eskimo tea-party. We started in straight away. He seemed glad to have someone to talk about it. "'Do you know how long I've been married?' he said. I didn't exactly. "'About a year, isn't it?' "'Not about a year,' he said sadly. "'Exactly a year. Yesterday.' Then I understood. I saw a light, a regular flash of light. Yesterday was the anniversary of the wedding. I'd arranged to take Mary to the Savoy and on to Covent Garden. She particularly wanted to hear Caruso. I had the ticket for the box in my pocket. Do you know, all through dinner I had a kind of rummy idea that there was something I'd forgotten, but I couldn't think what. Till your wife mentioned it? He nodded. She mentioned it, he said thoughtfully. I didn't ask for details. Women with hair and chins like Mary's may be angels most of the time, but when they take off their wings for a bit, they aren't half-hearted about it. To be absolutely frank, old top, said poor old Bobby, in a broken sort of way, my stock's pretty low at home. There didn't seem much to be done. I just lit a cigarette and sat there. He didn't want to talk. Presently he went out. I stood at the window of our upper smoking-room, which looks out onto Piccadilly, and watched him. He walked slowly along for a few yards, stopped, then walked on again, and finally turned into a jeweler's which is an instant of what I mean when I say that deep down in him there was a certain stratum of sense. It was from now on that I began to be really interested in this problem of Bobby's married life. Of course, one's always mildly interested in one's friends' marriages, hoping they'll turn out well and all that, but this was different. The average man isn't like Bobby, and the average girl isn't like Mary. It was like that old business of the immovable mass and the irresistible force. There was Bobby, ambling gently through life, a dear old chap in a hundred ways, but undoubtedly a chump of the first water. And there was Mary, determined that he shouldn't be a chump, and nature, mind you, on Bobby's side. When nature makes a chump like dear old Bobby, she's proud of him, and doesn't want her handiwork disturbed. She gives him a sort of natural armor to protect him against outside interference. And that armor is shortness of memory. Shortness of memory keeps a man a chomp, when, but for it, he might cease to be one. Take my case, for instance. I'm a chomp. Well, if I had remembered half the things people have tried to teach me during my life, my size in hats would be about number nine. But I didn't. I forgot them and it was just the same with Bobby. For about a week, perhaps a bit more, the recollection of that quiet little domestic evening bucked him up like a tonic. Elephants, I read somewhere, are champions at the memory business, but they were fools to Bobby during that week. 
But, bless you, the shock wasn't nearly big enough. It had dinted the armor, but it hadn't made a hole in it. Pretty soon he was back at the old game. It was pathetic, don't you know? The poor girl loved him, and she was frightened. It was the thin edge of the wedge, you see, and she knew it. A man who forgets what day he was married, when he's been married one year, will forget, at about the end of the fourth, that he's married at all. If she meant to get him in hand at all, she had got to do it now, before he began to drift away. I saw that clearly enough, and I tried to make Bobby see it, when he was by way of pouring out his troubles to me one afternoon. I can't remember what it was that he had forgotten the day before, but it was something she had asked him to bring home for her. It may have been a book. It's such a little thing to fuss about, said Bobby, and she knows it simply because I've got such an infernal memory about everything. I can't remember anything. Never could. He talked on for a while, and just as he was going, he pulled out a couple of sovereigns. Oh, by the way, he said, what's this for, I asked, though I knew. I owe it to you. How's that, I said. Why, that bet on Tuesday. In the billiard room? Murray and Brown were playing a hundred up, and I gave you two to one that Brown would win, and Murray beat him by twenty-odd. So you do remember some things, I said. He got quite excited, said that if I thought he was the sort of rotter who forgot to pay when he lost a bet, it was pretty rotten of me after knowing him all these years, and a lot more like that. Subside, laddie, I said. Then I spoke to him like a father. What you've got to do, my old college chum, I said, is to pull yourself together, and jolly quick, too. As things are shaping, you're due for a nasty knock before you know what's hit you. You've got to make an effort. Don't say you can't. This two-quid business shows that, even if your memory is rocky, you can remember some things. What you've got to do is to see that wedding anniversaries and so on are included on the list. It may be a brain strain, but you can't get out of it. I suppose you're right, said Bobby. But it beats me why she thinks such a lot of these rotten little dates. What's it matter if I forgot what day we were married on, or what day she was born on, or, or what day the cat had the measles? She knows I love her just as much as if I were a memorizing freak at the halls. That's not enough for a woman, I said. They want to be shown. Bear that in mind, and you'll be all right. Forget it, and there'll be trouble. He chewed the knob of his stick. Women are frightfully rummy, he said gloomily. You should have thought of that before you married one, I said. I don't see that I could have done any more. I'd put the whole thing in a nutshell for him. You would have thought he would have seen the point, and that it would have made him brace up and get a hold of himself. But no. Off he went again in the same old way. I gave up arguing with him. I had a good deal of time on my hands, but not enough to amount to anything when it was a question of reforming dear old Bobby by argument. If you see a man asking for trouble, and insisting on getting it, the only thing to do is to stand by and wait till it comes to him. After that you may get a chance. But till then there's nothing to be done. But I thought a lot about him. Bobby didn't get into the soup all at once. 
Weeks went by, and months, and still nothing happened. Now and then he'd come into the club with a kind of cloud on his shining morning face, and I'd known that there had been doings in the home. But it wasn't till well on in the spring that he got the thunderbolt, just where he'd been asking for it, in the thorax. I was smoking a quiet cigarette one morning on the window looking out over Piccadilly, and watching the buses and motors going up one way and down the other. Most interesting it is, I often do it, when in rushed Bobby, with his eyes bulging and his face the color of an oyster, waving a piece of paper in his hand. "'Reggie,' he said. "'Reggie, old top, she's gone.' "'Gone,' I said. "'Who?' "'Mary, of course. Gone. Left me. Gone.' "'Where?' I said. "'Silly question. Perhaps you're right. Anyhow, dear old Bobby nearly foamed at the mouth. "'Where? How should I know where? Here, read this.' He pushed the paper into my hand. It was a letter. "'Go on,' said Bobby. Read it.' So I did. It certainly was quite a letter. There was not much of it, but it was all to the point. This is what it said. My dear Bobby, I am going away. When you care enough about me to remember to wish me many happy returns on my birthday, I will come back. My address will be Box 341, London Morning News. I read it twice. Then I said, Well, why don't you? Why don't I what? Why don't you wish her many happy returns? It doesn't seem much to ask. But she says on her birthday. Well, when is her birthday? Can't you understand, said Bobby. I've forgotten. Forgotten, I said. Yes, said Bobby. Forgotten. What do you mean, forgotten, I said. Forgotten whether it's the 20th or the 21st, or what? How near do you get to it? I know it came somewhere between the 1st of January and the 31st of December. That's how near I get to it. Think. Think? What's the use of saying think? Think I haven't thought? I've been knocking sparks out of my brain ever since I opened that letter. And you can't remember? No. I rang the bell and ordered restoratives. Well, Bobby, I said. It's a pretty hard case to spring on an untrained amateur like me. Suppose someone had come to Sherlock Holmes and said, Mr. Holmes, here's a case for you. When is my wife's birthday? Wouldn't that have given Sherlock a jolt? However, I know enough about the game to understand that a fellow can't shoot off his deductive theories unless you start him with a clue. So rouse yourself out of that pop-eyed trance and come across with two or three. For instance, can't you remember the last time she had a birthday? What sort of weather was it? That might fix the month. Bobby shook his head. It was just ordinary weather, as near as I can recollect. Warm? Warmish? Or cold? Well, well, fairly cold, I perhaps. I can't remember. I ordered two more of the same. They seemed indicated in the young detective's manual. You're a great help, Bobby, I said, an invaluable assistant, one of those indispensable adjuncts without which no home is complete. Bobby seemed to be thinking. I've got it, he said suddenly. Look here, I gave her a present on her last birthday. All we have to do is go to the shop, 
hunt up the date when it was bought, and the thing's done.' "'Absolutely. What did you give her?' He sagged. "'I can't remember,' he said. "'Getting ideas is like golf. Some days you're right off. Others it's as easy as falling off a log.' I don't suppose dear old Bobby had ever had two ideas in the same morning before in his life. But now he did it without an effort. He just loosed another dry martini into the undergrowth, and before you could turn around, it had flushed quite a brainwave. Do you know those little books called When You Were Born? There's one for each month. They tell you your character, your talents, your strong points, and your weak points at four pence halfpenny a go. Bobby's idea was to buy the whole twelve and go through them till we found out which month hit off Mary's character. That would give us the month, and narrow it down a whole lot. A pretty hot idea for a non-thinker like dear old Bobby. We sallied out at once. He took half, and I took half, and we settled down to work. As I say, it sounded good, but when we came into the thing, we saw that there was a flaw. There was plenty of information, all right, but there wasn't a single month that didn't have something that exactly hit off Mary. For instance, in the December book it said, December people are apt to keep their own secrets. They are extensive travelers. Well, Mary had certainly kept her secret, and she had traveled quite extensively enough for Bobby's needs. Then October people were born with original ideas and loved moving. You couldn't have summed up Mary's little jaunt more neatly. February people had wonderful memories. Mary's speciality. We took a bit of a rest, then had another go at the thing. Bobby was all for May, because the book said that women born in that month were inclined to be capricious, which is always a barrier to a happy married life. But I plumped for February, because February women are unusually determined to have their own way are very earnest, and expect a full return in their companion or mates. Which he owned was about as like Mary as anything could be. In the end he tore the books up, stamped on them, burnt them, and went home. It was wonderful what a change the next few days made in dear old Bobby. Have you ever seen that picture, The Soul's Awakening? It represents a flapper of sorts, gazing in a startled sort of way into the middle distance, with a look in her eyes that seems to say, Surely that is George's step I hear on the mat. Can this be love? Well, Bobby had a soul's awakening, too. I don't suppose he had ever troubled to think in his life before, not really think. But now he was wearing his brain to the bone. It was painful in a way, of course, to see a fellow human being so thoroughly in the soup and I felt strongly that it was all for the best. I could see as plainly as possible that all these brainstorms were improving Bobby out of knowledge. When it was all over, he might possibly become a rotter again of a sort, but it would only be a pale reflection of the rotter he had been. It bore out the idea I had always had that what he needed was a really good jolt. I saw a great deal of him these days. I was his best friend and he came to me for sympathy. I gave it to him, too, with both hands, but I never failed to hand him the moral lesson when I had him weak. One day he came to me as I was sitting in the club, and I could see that he had had an idea. He looked happier than he'd done in weeks. 
Reggie, he said, I'm on the trail. This time I'm convinced that I shall pull it off. I've remembered something of vital importance. Yes, I said. I remember distinctly, he said, that on Mary's last birthday we went together to the Colosseum. How does that hit you? It's a fine bit of memorizing, I said, but how does it help? Why, they change the program every week there. Ah, I said, now you're talking. And the week we went, one of the turns was Professor Someone's Terpsichorean Cats. I recollect them distinctly. Now, are we narrowing it down, or aren't we, Reggie? I'm going round to the Colosseum this minute, and I'm going to dig the date of those Terpsichorean cats out of them if I have to use a crowbar. So that got him within six days, for the management treated us like brothers, brought out the archives, and ran agile fingers over the pages till they treed the cats in the middle of May. I told you it was May, said Bobby. Maybe you'll listen to me another time. If you've any sense, I said, there won't be another time. And Bobby said that there wouldn't. Once you get your money on the run, it parts as if it enjoyed doing it. I had just got off to sleep that night when my telephone bell rang. It was Bobby, of course. He didn't apologize. Reggie, he said, I've got it now for certain. It's just come to me. We saw those Terpsichorean cats at a matinee, old man. Yes, I said. Well, don't you see that that brings it down to two days? It must have been either Wednesday the 7th or Saturday the 10th. Yes, I said, if they didn't have daily matinees at the Coliseum. I heard him give a sort of howl. Bobby, I said. My feet were freezing, but I was fond of him. Well, I've remembered something, too. It's this. The day you went to the Coliseum, I lunched with you both at the Ritz. You had forgotten to bring any money with you, so you wrote a check. But I'm always writing checks. You are, but this was for a tenor, and made out to the hotel. Hunt up your checkbook and see how many checks for ten pounds payable to the Ritz Hotel you wrote out between May the 5th and May the 10th. He gave a kind of gulp. Reggie, he said, you're a genius. I've always said so. I believe you've got it. Hold the line. Presently he came back again. Hello, he said. I'm here, I said. It was the 8th. Reggie, old man, I... Topping, I said. Good night. It was working along into the small hours now, but I thought I might as well make a night of it and finish the thing up, so I rang up an hotel near the Strand. Put me through to Mrs. Cardew, I said. It's late, said the man at the other end. And getting later every minute, I said. Buck along, laddie. I waited patiently. I had missed my beauty sleep, and my feet had frozen hard, but I was past regrets. "'What is the matter?' said Mary's voice. "'My feet are cold,' I said, but I didn't call you up to tell you that particularly. I've just been chatting with Bobby, Mrs. Cardew. "'Oh, is that Mr. Pepper?' "'Yes. He's remembered it, Mrs. Cardew.' She gave a sort of scream. I've often thought how interesting it must be to be one of those exchange girls. The things they must hear, don't you know? Bobby's howl and gulp and Mrs. Bobby's scream and all about my feet and all that. Most interesting it must be. He's remembered it, she gasped. Did you tell him? No. Well, I hadn't. Mr. Pepper? Yes? 
Was he... has he been... was he very worried?" I chuckled. This was where I was billed to be the life and soul of the party. Worried? He was about the most worried man between here and Edinburgh. He has been worrying as if he was paid to do it by the nation. He has started out to worry after breakfast, and... oh, well, you can never tell with women. My idea was that we should pass the rest of the night slapping each other on the back across the wire, and telling each other what bally-brainy conspirators we were, don't you know, and all that. But I had got just as far as this when she bit at me. Absolutely. I heard the snap. And then she said, Oh, in that choked kind of way. And when a woman says, Oh, like that, it means all the bad words she loved to say, if she only knew them. And then she began. What brutes men are! What horrible brutes! How could you stand by and see poor dear Bobby worrying himself into a fever, when a word from you would have put everything right? I can't—' But— And you call yourself his friend. His friend! Metallic laugh. Most unpleasant. It shows how one can be deceived. I used to think you a kind-hearted man. But, I say, when I suggested the thing you thought it perfectly—I thought it hateful, abominable. But you said it was absolutely top. I said nothing of the kind, and if I did, I didn't mean it. I don't wish to be unjust, Mr. Pepper, but I must say that to me there seems to be something positively fiendish in a man who could go out of his way to separate a husband from his wife, simply in order to amuse himself by gloating over his agony. But when one single word would have—but you made me promise not to—' I bleated. And if I did, do you suppose I didn't expect you to have the sense to break your promise?" I had finished. I had no further observations to make. I hung up the receiver and crawled into bed. I still see Bobby when he comes to the club, but I do not visit the old homestead. He is friendly, but he stops short of issuing invitations. I ran across Mary at the academy last week, and her eyes went through me like a couple of bullets through a pat of butter, and as they came out the other side, and I limped off to piece myself together again, there occurred to me the simple epitaph which, when I am no more, I intend to have inscribed on my tombstone. It was this. He was a man who acted from the best motives. There is one born every minute. End of Absent Treatment This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. My Man Jeeves by P. G. Wodehouse. 5. Helping Freddy. I don't want to bore you, don't you know, and all that sort of rot, but I must tell you about dear old Freddy Meadows. I'm not a flyer at literary style and all that, but I'll get some writer chappy to give the thing a wash and a brush up when I've finished, and that'll be all right. Dear old Freddy, don't you know, has been a dear old pal of mine for years and years. So when I went into the club one morning, and found him sitting alone in a dark corner, staring glassily at nothing, 
and generally looking like the last rose of summer, you can understand I was quite disturbed about it. As a rule, the old rotter is the life and soul of our set. Quite the little lump of fun and all that sort of thing. Jimmy Pinkerton was with me at the time. Jimmy's a fellow who writes plays, a deuced brainy sort of fellow, and between us we set to work to question the poor pop-eyed chappy until we finally got at what the matter was. As we might have guessed, it was a girl. He had had a quarrel with Angela West, the girl he was engaged to, and she had broken off the engagement. What the row had been about he didn't say, but apparently she was pretty well fed up. She wouldn't let him come near her, refused to talk on the phone, and sent back his letters unopened. I was sorry for poor old Freddy. I knew what it felt like. I was once in love myself with a girl called Elizabeth Shulbred, and the fact that she couldn't stand me at any price will be recorded in my autobiography. I knew the thing for Freddy. Change of scene is what you want, old scout, I said. Come with me to Marvis Bay. I've taken a cottage there. Jimmy's coming down on the 24th. We'll be a cozy party. He's absolutely right, said Jimmy. Change of scene's the thing. I knew a man. Girl refused him. Man went abroad. Two months later, girl wired him. Come back, Muriel. Man started to write out a reply. Suddenly found that he couldn't remember the girl's surname, so never answered at all. But Freddy wouldn't be comforted. He just went on looking as if he had swallowed his last sixpence. However, I got him to promise to come to Marvis Bay with me. He said he might as well be there as anywhere. Do you know Marvis Bay? It's in Dorsetshire. It isn't what you'd call a fiercely exciting spot, but it has its good points. You spend the day there bathing and sitting on the sands, and in the evening you stroll out on the shore with the gnats. At nine o'clock you rub ointment on the wounds and go to bed. It seemed to suit poor old Freddy. Once the moon was up and the breeze sighing in the trees, you couldn't drag him from that beach with a rope. He became quite a popular pet with the gnats. They'd hang round waiting for him to come out, and would give perfectly good strollers the missing balk just so as to be in good condition for him. Yes, it was a peaceful sort of life, but by the end of the first week I began to wish that Jimmy Pickerton had arranged to come down earlier, for as a companion, Freddy, poor old chap, wasn't anything to write home to mother about. When he wasn't chewing a pipe and scowling at the carpet, he was sitting at the piano, playing the rosary with one finger. He couldn't play anything except the rosary, and he couldn't play much of that. Somewhere around the third bar a fuse would blow out and he'd have to start all over again. He was playing it as usual one morning when I came in from bathing. Reggie, he said in a hollow voice, looking up, I've seen her. Seen her, I said. What? Miss West? I was down at the post office, getting the letters, and we met in the doorway. She cut me. He started playing the rosary again and side-slipped in the second bar. Reggie, he said, you ought never to have brought me here. I must go away. Go away, I said. Don't talk such rot. This is the best thing that could have happened. This is where you come out strong. She cut me. Never mind. Be a sportsman. Have another dash at her. She looked clean through me. 
Of course she did. But don't mind that. Put this in my hands. I'll see you through. Now what you want, I said, is to place her under some obligation to you. What you want is to get her timidly thanking you. What you want, but what's she going to thank me timidly for? I thought for a moment. Look out for a chance and save her from drowning, I said. I can't swim, said Freddy. That was Freddy all over, don't you know? A dear old chap in a thousand ways, but no help to a fellow, if you know what I mean. He cranked up the piano once more, and I sprinted for the open. I strolled out onto the sands and began to think this thing over. There was no doubt that the brainwork had to be done by me. Dear old Freddy had his strong qualities, he was top hole at polo, and in happier days I've heard him give an imitation of cats fighting in a backyard that would have surprised you. But apart from that, he wasn't a man of enterprise. Well, don't you know I was rounding some rocks, with my brain whirring like a dynamo, when I caught sight of a blue dress, and, by Jove, it was the girl. I had never met her, but Freddy had sixteen photographs of her sprinkled round his bedroom, and I knew I couldn't be mistaken. She was sitting on the sand, helping a small, fat child build a castle. On a chair close by was an elderly lady reading a novel. I heard the girl call her aunt. So, doing the Sherlock Holmes business, I deduced that the fat child was her cousin. It struck me that if Freddy had been there, he would probably have tried to work up some sentiment about the kid on the strength of it. Personally, I couldn't manage it. I don't think I ever saw a child who made me feel less sentimental. He was one of those round, bulging kids. After he had finished the castle, he seemed to get bored with life and began to whimper. The girl took him off to where a fellow was selling sweets at a stall, and I walked on. Now fellows, if you ask them, will tell you that I'm a chump. Well, I don't mind. I admit it. I am a chump. All the peppers have been chumps. But what I do say is that every now and then, when you least expect it, I get a pretty hot brainwave. And that's what happened now. I doubt if the idea that had come to me then would have occurred to a single one of any dozen of the brainiest chappies you care to name. It came to me on my return journey. I was walking back along the shore when I saw the fat kid meditatively smacking a jellyfish with a spade. The girl wasn't with him. In fact, there didn't seem to be anyone in sight. I was just going to pass on when I got the brainwave. I thought the whole thing out in a flash, don't you know? From what I had seen of the two, the girl was evidently fond of this kid. And, anyhow, he was her cousin, so what I said to myself was this. If I kidnap this young heavyweight for the moment, and if, when the girl has got frightfully anxious about where he can have got to, dear old Freddy suddenly appears leading the infant by the hand and telling a story to the effect that he has found him wandering at large about the country and practically saved his life, why, the girl's gratitude is bound to make her chuck hostilities and be friends again. So I gathered in the kid and made off with him. All the way home I pictured that scene of reconciliation. I could see it so vividly, don't you know, that by George it gave me quite a choky feeling in my throat. Freddy, dear old chap, was rather slow at getting on to the fine points of the idea. 
When I appeared, carrying the kid, and dumped him down in our sitting-room, he didn't absolutely effervesce with joy, if you know what I mean. The kid had started to bellow by this time, and poor old Freddy seemed to find it rather trying. "'Stop it,' he said. "'Do you think nobody's got any troubles except you? What the deuce is all this, Reggie?' The kid came back at him with a yell that made the window rattle. I raced to the kitchen and fetched a jar of honey. It was the right stuff. The kid stopped bellowing and began to smear his face with the stuff. "'Well,' said Freddy, when silence had set in. I explained the idea. After a while it began to strike him. "'You are not such a fool as you look sometimes, Reggie,' he said handsomely. "'I'm bound to say this seems pretty good.' Then he disentangled the kid from the honey-jar and took him out, to scour the beach for Angela. "'I don't know when I've felt so happy. I was so fond of dear old Freddy that to know that he was soon going to be his old bright self again made me feel as if somebody had left me about a million pounds. I was leaning back in a chair on the veranda, smoking peacefully, when down the road I saw the old boy returning, and, by George, the kid was still with him. And Freddy looked as if he hadn't a friend in the world. "'Hello,' I said. "'Couldn't you find her?' "'Yes, I found her,' he replied, with one of those bitter, hollow laughs. "'Well, then,' Freddy sank into a chair and groaned. "'This isn't her cousin, you idiot,' he said. "'He's no relation at all. "'He's just a kid she happened to meet on the beach. "'She had never seen him before in her life.' "'What? Who is he, then?' "'I don't know. "'Oh, Lord, I've had a time. "'Thank goodness you'll probably spend the next few years of your life "'at Dartmoor for kidnapping. "'That's my only consolation.' I'll come and jeer at you through the bars. "'Tell me all, old boy,' I said. It took him a good long time to tell the story, for he broke off in the middle of nearly every sentence to call me names, but I gathered gradually what had happened. She had listened like an iceberg while he told the story he had prepared, and then, well, she didn't actually call him a liar, but she gave him to understand in a general sort of way that if he and Dr. Cook ever happened to meet, and started swapping stories, it would be about the biggest duel on record. And then he had crawled away with the kid, licked to a splinter. "'And mind, this is your affair,' he concluded. "'I'm not mixed up in it at all. If you want to escape your sentence, you better go and find the kid's parents and return him before the police come for you.' "'By Jove!' You know, till I started to tramp the place with this infernal kid, I never had a notion it would have been so deuced difficult to restore a child to its anxious parents. It's a mystery to me how kidnappers ever get caught. I searched Marvis Bay like a bloodhound, but nobody came forward to claim the infant. You'd have thought, from the lack of interest in him, that he was stopping there all by himself in a cottage of his own. It was until, by an inspiration, I thought to ask the sweet stall man that I had found out his name was Medwin, and that his parents lived at a place called Ocean Rest, in Beach Road. I shot off there like an arrow and knocked at the door. Nobody answered. I knocked again. I could hear movement inside, but nobody came. I was just going to get to work on that knocker in such a way that the idea would filter through into these people's heads that I wasn't standing there just for the fun of the thing when a voice from somewhere above shouted, Hi! 
I looked up and saw a round pink face, with gray whiskers east and west of it, staring down from an upper window. Hi, it shouted again. What the deuce do you mean by hi, I said. You can't come in, said the face. Hello, is that Tootles? My name is not Tootles, and I don't want to come in, I said. Are you Mr. Medwin? I've brought back your son. I see him. Peep-o, Tootles. Dada can see you. The voice disappeared with a jerk. I could hear voices. The face reappeared. Hi. I churned the gravel madly. Do you live here? said the face. I'm staying here for a few weeks. What's your name? Pepper, but Pepper? Any relation to Edward Pepper, the colliery owner? My uncle. But I used to know him well. Dear old Edward Pepper. I wish I was with him now. I wish you were, I said. He beamed down at me. This is most fortunate, he said. We were wondering what we were to do with Tootles. You see, we have the mumps here. My daughter, Boodles, has just developed mumps. Tootles must not be exposed to the risk of infection. We could not think what we were to do with him. It was most fortunate your finding him. He strayed from his nurse. I would hesitate to trust him to the care of a stranger, but you are different. Any nephew of Edward Pepper's has my implicit confidence. You must take Tootles to your house. It will be an ideal arrangement. I have written to my brother in London to come and fetch him. He may be here in a few days. May? He is a busy man, of course, but he should certainly be here within a week. Till then Tootles can stop with you. It's an excellent plan. Very obliged to you. Your wife will like Tootles. I haven't got a wife, I yelled, but the window had closed with a bang, as if the man with the whiskers had found a germ trying to escape, don't you know, and had headed it off just in time. I breathed a deep breath and wiped my forehead. The window flew up again. Hi! A package weighing about a ton hit me on the head and burst like a bomb. Did you catch it? said the face, reappearing. Dear me, you missed it. Never mind, you can get it at the grocer's. Ask for Bailey's granulated breakfast chips. Tootles loves them for breakfast with a little milk. Be certain to get Bailey's. My spirit was broken, if you know what I mean. I accepted the situation. Taking Tootles by the hand, I walked slowly away. Napoleon's retreat from Moscow was a picnic by the side of it. As we turned up the road, we met Freddy's Angela. The sight of her had a marked effect on the kid Tootles. He pointed at her and said, Wah! The girl stopped and smiled. I loosed the kid and he ran to her. Well, baby, she said, bending down to him. So father found you again, did he? Your little son and I made friends on the beach this morning, she said to me. This was the limit. Coming on top of that interview with a whiskered lunatic, it so utterly unnerved me, don't you know, that she had nodded good-bye and was halfway down the road before I caught up with my breath enough to deny the charge of being the infant's father. I hadn't expected dear old Freddy to sing with joy when he found out what had happened, but I did think he might have shown a little more manly fortitude. He leaped up, glared at the kid, and clutched his head. He didn't speak for a long time, 
But, on the other hand, when he began he did not leave off for a long time. He was quite emotional, dear old boy. It beat me where he could have picked up such expressions. Well, he said when he had finished, say something. Heavens, man, why don't you say something? You don't give me a chance, old top, I said soothingly. What are you going to do about it? What can we do about it? We can't spend our time acting as nurses to this, this exhibit. He got up. I'm going back to London, he said. Freddy, I cried. Freddy, old man. My voice shook. Would you desert a pal at a time like this? I would. This is your business, and you've got to manage it. Freddy, I said, you've got to stand by me. You must. Do you realize that this child has to be undressed and bathed and dressed again? You wouldn't leave me to do all that single-handed. Freddy, old scout, we were at school together. Your mother likes me. You owe me a tenor. He sat down again. Oh, well, he said resignedly. Besides, old top, I said, I did it all for your sake, don't you know? He looked at me in a curious way. Reggie, he said in a strained voice, one moment. I'll stand a good deal, but I won't stand for being expected to be grateful. Looking back at it, I see that what saved me from Colney Hatch in that crisis was my bright idea of buying up most of the contents of the local sweet shop. By serving out sweets to the kid practically incessantly, we managed to get through the rest of that day pretty satisfactorily. At eight o'clock he fell asleep in a chair, and, having undressed him by unbuttoning every button in sight, and where there were no buttons, pulling till something gave, we carried him up to bed. Freddy stood looking at the pile of clothes on the floor, and I knew what he was thinking. To get the kid undressed had been simple, a mere matter of muscle. But how were we going to get him into his clothes again? I stirred the pile with my foot. There was a long linen arrangement which might have been anything, also a strip of pink flannel which was like nothing on earth. We looked at each other and smiled wanly. But in the morning I remembered that there were children at the next bungalow but one. We went there before breakfast and borrowed their nurse. Women are wonderful. By George, they are. She had that kid dressed and looking fit for anything in about eight minutes. I showered wealth on her, and she promised to come in morning and evening. I sat down to breakfast almost cheerful again. It was the first bit of silver lining there had been to the cloud up to date. And after all, I said, there's lots to be said for having a child about the house, if you know what I mean. Kind of cozy and domestic, what? Just then the kid upset the milk over Freddy's trousers, and when he had come back after changing his clothes, he began to talk about what a much-maligned man King Herod was. The more he saw of Toodles, he said, the less he wondered at those impulsive views of his on infanticide. Two days later, Jimmy Pinkerton came down. Jimmy took one look at the kid, who happened to be howling at the moment, and picked up his portmanteau. For me, he said, the hotel. I can't write dialogue with that sort of thing going on. Whose work is this? Which of you adopted this little treasure? I told him about Mr. Medwind and the mumps. Jimmy seemed interested. I might work this up for the stage, he said. It wouldn't make a bad situation for an act two of a farce. Farce, snarled poor old Freddy.
Rather, curtain of act one on hero, a well-meaning, half-baked sort of idiot, just like, that is to say, a well-meaning, half-baked sort of idiot, kidnapping the child. Second act, his adventures with it. I'll rough it out tonight. Come along and show me to the hotel, Reggie. As we went, I told him the rest of the story, the Angela part. He laid down his portmanteau and looked at me like an owl through his glasses. What, he said, why hang it, this is a play ready-made. It's the old tiny hand business. Always safe stuff. Parted lovers, lisping child, reconciliation over the little cradle. It's big. Child, center. Girl, left center. Freddy, upstage by the piano. Can Freddy play the piano? He can play a little of the rosary with one finger. Jimmy shook his head. No, we shall have to cut out the soft music. But the rest's all right. Look here. He squatted in the sand. This stone is the girl. This bit of seaweed's the child. This nutshell is Freddy. Dialogue leading up to child's line. Child speaks like, Before lady, don't you love dada? Business of outstretched hands. Hold picture for a moment. Freddy crosses left, takes girl's hand. Business of swallowing lump in throat. Then big speech. Ah, Marie, or whatever her name is. Jane, Agnes, Angela? Very well. Ah, Angela, has not this gone on too long? A little child rebukes us, Angela, and so on. Freddy must work up his own part. I'm just giving you the general outline. We must get a good line for the child. Boofer lady, does oo love dada? Isn't definite enough. We want something more, ah, uh, kiss Freddy. That's it. Short, crisp, and has the punch. But, Jimmy, old top, I said, the only objection is, don't you know, that there's no way of getting the girl to the cottage. She cuts Freddy. She wouldn't come within a mile of him. Jimmy frowned. That's awkward, he said. Well, we shall have to make it an exterior set instead of an interior. We can easily corner her on the beach somewhere when we're ready. Meanwhile, we must get the kid letter perfect. First rehearsal for lines and business eleven sharp tomorrow. Poor old Freddy was in such a gloomy state of mind that we decided not to tell him the idea till we had finished coaching the kid. He wasn't in the mood to have a thing like that hanging over him. So we concentrated on Tootles. And pretty early in the proceedings, we saw that the only way to get Tootles worked up to the spirit of the thing was to introduce sweets of some sort as sub-motive, so to speak. The chief difficulty, said Jimmy Pickerton at the end of the first rehearsal, is to establish a connection in the kid's mind between his line and the sweets. Once he has grasped the basic fact that those two words, clearly spoken, result automatically in acid drops, we have got a success. I've often thought, don't you know, how interesting it must be to be one of those animal trainer johnnies, to stimulate the dawning intelligence and that sort of thing. Well, this was every bit as exciting. Some days success seemed to be staring us in the eye, and the kid got the line out as if he'd been an old professional. And then he'd go all to pieces again. And time was flying. We must hurry up, Jimmy, I said. The kid's uncle may arrive any day now and take him away. And we haven't an understudy, said Jimmy. There's something in that. We must work. My goodness, that kid's a bad study. I have known deaf-mutes who have learned the part quicker. 
I will say this for the kid, though. He was a trier. Failure didn't discourage him. Whenever there was any kind of sweet near, he had a dash at his line, and kept on saying something till he got what he was after. His only fault was his uncertainty. Personally, I would have been prepared to risk it, and start the performance at the first opportunity, but Jimmy said no. We're not nearly ready, said Jimmy. Today, for instance, he said, kick Freddy. That's not going to win any girl's heart, and she might do it, too. No, we must postpone production a while yet. But, by George, we didn't. The curtain went up that very next afternoon. It was nobody's fault, certainly not mine. It was just fate. Freddy had settled down at the piano, and I was leading the kid out of the house to exercise it, when, just as we'd got out to the veranda, along came the girl Angela on her way to the beach. The kid set up his usual yell at the sight of her, and she stopped at the foot of the steps. "'Hello, baby,' she said. "'Good morning,' she said to me. "'May I come up?' She didn't wait for an answer. She just came. She seemed to be that sort of girl. She came up on the veranda and started fussing over the kid. And six feet away, mind you, Freddy smiting the piano in the sitting-room. It was a dash-disturbing situation, don't you know. At any minute Freddy might take it into his head to come out onto the veranda, and we hadn't even begun to rehearse him in his part. I tried to break up the scene. "'We were just going down to the beach,' I said. "'Yes,' said the girl. She listened for a moment. "'So you're having your piano tuned?' she said. "'My aunt has been trying to find a tuner for hours. Do you mind if I go in and tell this man to come on to us when he's finished here?' "'Er, not yet,' I said. "'Not yet, if you don't mind. He can't bear to be disturbed when he's working. It's the artistic temperament. I'll tell him later.' "'Very well,' she said, getting up to go. "'Ask him to come to Pine Bungalow. West is the surname. Oh, he seems to have stopped. I suppose he'll be out in a minute now. I'll wait.' "'Don't you think? Shouldn't we be going to the beach?' I said." She had started talking to the kid and didn't hear. She was feeling in her pocket for something. "'The beach,' I babbled. "'See what I've brought for you, baby?' she said, and by George, don't you know, she held up in front of the kid's bulging eyes a chunk of toffee the size of the automobile club. That finished it. We had just been having a long rehearsal, and the kid was all worked up in his part. He got it right the first time. "'Kiss Freddy!' he shouted. And the front door opened, and Freddy came out onto the veranda for all the world as if he had been taking a cue. He looked at the girl, and the girl looked at him. I looked at the ground, and the kid looked at the toffee. "'Kiss Freddy!' he yelled. "'Kiss Freddy!' The girl was still holding up the toffee, and the kid did what Jimmy Pinkerton would have called business of outstretched hands towards it. "'Kiss Freddy!' he shrieked. "'What does this mean?' said the girl, turning to me. "'You'd better give it to him, don't you know?' I said. "'He'll go on till you do.' She gave the kid his toffee, and he subsided. Poor old Freddy still stood there, gaping, without a word. "'What does it mean?' said the girl again. Her face was pink, and her eyes were sparkling in that sort of way, don't you know, that makes a fellow feel as if he hadn't any bones in him, if you know what I mean. 
Did you ever tread on your partner's dress at a dance and tear it and see her smile at you like an angel and say, Please don't apologize, it's nothing, and then suddenly meet her clear blue eyes and feel as if you had stepped on the teeth of a rake and had the handle jump up and hit you in the face? Well, that's how Freddy's Angela looked. Well, she said, and her teeth gave a little click. I gulped. Then I said it was nothing. Then I said it was nothing much. Then I said, Oh, well, it was this way. And after a few brief remarks about Jimmy Pinkerton, I told her all about it. And all the while, idiot Freddy stood there gaping without a word. And the girl didn't speak either. She just stood listening. And then she began to laugh. I never heard a girl laugh so much. She leaned against the side of the veranda and shrieked. And all the while, Freddy, the world's champion chump, stood there saying nothing. Well, I sidled towards the steps. I had said all I had to say, and it seemed to me that about here the stage direction exit was written in my part. I gave poor old Freddy up in despair. If only he had said a word, it might have been all right. But there he stood, speechless. What can a fellow do with a fellow like that? Just out of sight of the house I met Jimmy Pinkerton. Hello, Reggie, he said. I was just coming to you. Where's the kid? We must have a big rehearsal today. No good, I said sadly. It's all over. The thing's finished. Poor dear old Freddy has made an ass of himself and killed the whole show. Tell me, said Jimmy. I told him. Fluffed his lines, did he? said Jimmy, nodding thoughtfully. It's always the way with these amateurs. We must go back at once. Things look bad, but it may not be too late, he said as we started. Even now, a few well-chosen words from a man of the world and... Great Scott, I cried. Look! In front of the cottage stood six children, a nurse, and the fellow from the grocer's, staring. From the windows of the houses opposite projected about four hundred heads of both sexes staring. Down the road came galloping five more children, a dog, three men, and a boy, about to stare. And on our porch, as unconscious of the spectators as if they had been alone in the Sahara, stood Freddy and Angela, clasped in each other's arms. Dear old Freddy may have been fluffy in his lines, but by George his business had certainly gone with a bang. End of Helping Freddy